Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 15. I am your host, Stephen Oki. And for this, our penultimate episode of season one, I bring you my conversation with Tobias Winwright of St. Louis University. Tobias and I had the opportunity to meet up at this past summer's CTSA convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we talked about how his background as a law enforcement officer, as a corrections officer, uh, how that shaped his work in moral theology. We talked about his newer work in healthcare and bioethics, and we talked about what it means to be a public intellectual. I also discovered that he has a tremendous love of puns, and he is a longtime Marvel Comics reader. Please let us know what you think of the episode on iTunes or on the blog, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. Today, I'm here with Tobias Winwright who is an associate professor of theological ethics at St. Louis University. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And I understand you have a, you have a chair now, right? Yes. I, uh, so I am still an associate professor in theological studies, doing theological ethics at St. Louis University, but I'm also an associate professor in the medical school at St. Louis University in the Ganegi Center for Healthcare Ethics. So it's a joint appointment, and... I am the Hubert Mader Endowed Chair of Healthcare Ethics. Congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. I'm sure we will talk about that here today. The, the first question we like to start with, to focus on, is, is how did you come to be a theologian? What was it that brought you into this field and career and, and vocation? And yeah. Right. It wasn't one of those careers or vocations that I mentioned when I was a child when people asked me, <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you even know what a theologian was then? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, you know. I certainly didn't. So when I was asked as a child, what do I want to be? This, I, I said a lawyer or a, a priest even, maybe a teacher or, or a politician. I, I, had, I had a lot of interest in politics growing mm-hmm. up and read a lot of history and read about you know military, general stuff, General Custer or whatever, Civil War and and beyond, and also just about politicians and politics. So all those things interested me, and religion and theology always interested me. I'm a cradle Catholic from northwest Ohio, rural northwest Ohio, started out on a farm. Hmm. I was born in a town called Hicksville, and that's really its name. Uh, Hicksville, Ohio, not far from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Sure. And so I have three younger brothers, and Farming, I mean, we did some of that. That wasn't really a career I had in mind. So my father farmed but also worked in a factory, and my mother raised us boys. They divorced when I was 10, and we moved to Florida, and my my mom got a job when we moved to Florida as a police officer. Hmm. And uh, so she took care of us and, and worked hard. And so neither of my parents went to college or university, but I always wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. When I was living in northern Ohio, Notre Dame was only about 80 miles away. Yeah. So we went there a couple times when I was a kid, and, and we would drive by other campuses. So education was important to my family, but it turns out I'm the only one in my family, even including my brothers, who went to college or university. Hmm. In high school, I, I still kept an interest in religion. I went to a public high school. Earlier, I was in a Catholic parochial school, in Ohio, but I, I, I decided priesthood probably wasn't going to be the thing because I, I did like girls, yeah. even though most of them didn't like me, but um, <laughs> I, I, 
I did uh, have that interest, and I thought, you know, uh, marriage would be something, hopefully, someday. So as a student, uh, I, I started out at a community college, St. Petersburg Junior College mm. in the Clearwater, Tampa area. Yeah. And I just did. That's where I live now. Okay, yeah, that's right. St. Leo's is not far from there. So I, I, I started out at community college, and I was working at a, a, a pinball game, art game room arcade mm-hmm. for a while. And taking classes and just doing the basic liberal arts curriculum, thinking probably law school would mm-hmm. be the thing ultimately. So I transferred to the University of South Florida after I got my associate's degree, and I studied political science, minored in history. So those interests kind of won out. But I was always in weekly Bible studies with my friends in high school and in college, and religion and theology interested me a lot. Uh, so. I was still interested in that. Now, the thing that really brought all these things together was the work I was doing at the game room didn't pay enough. Sure. So I I had to find another job, and I applied. My mom suggested, why don't I apply to police departments mm-hmm. and, and, and work my way through. So I applied to several police departments, and lo and behold, the one she worked for, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department, hired me. I was I just turned 19, so when I was in the academy, I worked. I, I went to college during the evening classes, and then once I was working, I worked in the maximum security jail. Wow! And booked people and, and did a lot of other things there, and and that was better than being on patrol because although I really wasn't supposed to, I was able to read and mm-hmm. do some do some writing for classes, and and so I worked four years doing that and went through St. Petersburg Junior College and then University of South Florida. Altogether, it took me four and a half years to graduate with my bachelor's degree. But while doing all that, I I, I thought about questions like, what about the use of force? What about death penalty? What about, you know, if somebody tries to escape, you know, and I'm told, all right, you got to shoot. And and I was asked. I mean, I really pondered. Would I shoot to kill? Mm-hmm. And why did these questions bother me? It was actually because of my my religious Christian mm-hmm. faith. So I thought hard about those questions. And at the same time, when I was at classes at school, I had an advisor for my political science major who did his Ph.D. at Notre Dame in, in political philosophy, basically. And he had us reading Aquinas and Aristotle and Plato, but also Gaudium et Spes. Interesting. I graduated high school in 1983. The Challenge of Peace had come out, so I, you know, there's a little bit of. I was really becoming more and more interested in ethical questions and ways to bring these concerns that I was kind of feeling sensitive to while working at night. You know, about use of force and violence and all that. I was thinking about them in relation to what I was studying during the day mm-hmm. and becoming more and more interested in that. And along the way, I, I did have a girlfriend somehow at the time. <laughs> and, uh, How did you, you know, have time? <laughs> yeah, I slept about four hours every 24 hours, and somehow I had a girlfriend, and she was wonderful. And, and she, this was before the Internet, she sent away to catalog, uh, to, for catalogs for me for graduate schools, mm-hmm. I was I took the LSAT. I was still thinking about law school. Sure, I w- I had I was receiving catalogs from law schools, 
But the religious stuff, theological stuff, the ethics still interested me, and she knew that. And she sent away for a catalog from Duke Divinity mm-hmm. School, and she had relatives up in North Carolina, so we drove up there to visit campus. And I had heard of Stanley Hauerwas. Sure. And, and the pacifism stuff, and I, I wanted to learn more and be challenged. Right. So I met with the dean of admissions at that time, who, as it turns out, is now Stanley Hauerwas's spouse, mm-hmm. uh, Paula Gilbert. And she heard my story, and I got in, and so I did, although I'm Catholic, I did a Master of Divinity there mm-hmm. and, and took a number of courses with Harawas, as well as Harmon Smith, as well as David Steinmetz and J- Jeffrey Wainwright and, and many others. But the ethics really interested me the most, especially with regard to violence-related questions, war and peace, death penalty, policing. But I also took courses on bioethics I, I had I think three courses there on medical bioethics mm-hmm. related things so I was interested in a lot of stuff yeah so it kind of all happened it wasn't planned yeah but it all kind of fell together and now looking back on it in retrospect mm-hmm. it all makes sense like wow you know I <laughs> I, I did not want to work in law enforcement I did it because I had to yeah and, and I couldn't wait to get out of it I felt like I wanted to escape from the mass maximum security jail too, but I, now I'm glad it all happened mm-hmm. that way because it, it all of that informs somehow yeah. how I think and how I teach and how I write today on just about everything. How does how does that kind of background come into play in say like the classroom like when you're when you're teaching ethics when you're teaching questions of use of force and, yeah. and so forth? Well, is I, there, like is there a moment when you surprise everyone where like, well, actually, when I was in maximum security prison or yeah i mean i do have stories mm-hmm. so they so students they think it's interesting right mm-hmm. i mean it's like oh you know somebody that just didn't go straight through typical undergrad graduate school and studied it all you know in a book or something yeah. you're not so abstract i have experience that i can draw from so there's a little bit of a Niburian realism that you know, sometimes colors what I do because, you know, yeah, I, I've been out there where there are people out there to hurt you mm-hmm. and, and and people aren't always so good. But I've also seen a lot of good stuff. But yeah, so I get a lot of cachet or mileage out of it when I'm talking at parishes, when I'm talking in the classroom. I've taught ethics at police academies mm. and that experience really, I've published in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin as well as the Journal of Criminal Justice Ethics. Mm-hmm. So that is a little bit of a credibility thing right. that I think I, I'm glad I have. Mm-hmm. When I was, my first job was at Simpson College, a Methodist-related school in Indianola, Iowa, just south of Des Moines. And when I was teaching there, some of my students were Des Moines PD, Des Moines police officers, and um, they, they told me that they needed an ethics instructor up there at their academy. So. I taught ethics for Des Moines Police Department mm-hmm. at their academy and did in-service training workshops for them for a few years. Mm-hmm. And, and they were like, well, you know, you did what you did earlier back in the 80s. Now it's the 90s, and a lot has changed. I mean, when I was in Florida, I was still using a, a 38 revolver <laughs> uh, with a speed loader, which wasn't really always that speedy. And, and, you know, Des Moines was already using, you know, uh, 9 mils, mm-hmm. and, and I'd never— done that so they said would you like to go
go through some remedial training and, and, and we'll make you a reserve officer and you mm -hmm. can patrol whenever we need the help, but teach, teach ethics for us and all that. So I did that for a few years too and wore a badge and students sometimes would say, oh, I saw you on TV last night on this shooting <laughs> on the news or whatever. And, and, but, you know, I'm like, yeah, boy, you know, if only you could have seen what the camera wasn't showing. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, did, yeah, you, did I, you ever bust a student? No. Uh, <laughs> and, and there there was at least one time I did early, early morning shift and I there was a accident, a car accident, and I was working it. And, you know, you just can't say, all right. I'm done. I got to go. Right. You got to do. And, and so I, I didn't have time to go home and change mm -hmm. before I drove down to Simpson to get ready to teach. So I drove straight down to Simpson in uniform mm -hmm. and, and had all my gear on me and everything. And I went into my office and students saw me, mm -hmm. you know, like there I am. But I had, a, you know, a change of clothes in my office and I switched into professor garb there. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I never went to class with like all that stuff on and said you better behave today or else right mm -hmm. or anything like that but <laughs> but yeah no i mean it's was, been good was it difficult to to reconcile teaching theology teaching ethics and and being a police officer at the same time was it or did those seem very complimentary to you or right the the police officers i i worked with i mean they always wanted to talk you mm -hmm. know about everything and, and they found it curious and interesting i mean i don't do that anymore yeah, I, I I taught ethics at St. Louis County Police Academy a, a few times, but that was several years ago, and and they didn't. I haven't been back in a number of years. Which what happened in Ferguson and the St. Louis area a year ago? I mean, uh, some of those people that's where they go for training, and, right. and and I'm like, well, you know, they need some, they need to have some. Hopefully, somebody's doing some good ethics teaching there because uh, from what I see, it looks like there's a need. So I don't do that anymore, and one of the reasons is well i i am now married mm -hmm. and so those earlier things when i did it earlier i wasn't married i felt i was younger so i was invulnerable i felt mm -hmm. even though i saw people die i had friends who died and i've been hurt and i've got scars from those years i mean actual physical scars not just scars on my soul or something right. like that but now that i'm older and have a family and two young daughters it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. it, it is dangerous work. I mean, yeah. most of what police do is not shooting and f punching and, 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 and arresting people. I mean, most of the time it's car accidents and directing traffic and finding a lost child or a lot of things. Just You're just hanging out. And, and, but the, the danger is always a possibility. And so I, I well... Every now and then I miss having a badge. If mm -hmm. I see somebody that, you know, cuts me off illegally in traffic, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I miss being able to say, well, you know, come over here. Let's have a talk. Here's my badge. I, uh, so every now and then I miss that, but I don't carry a weapon. I don't even own a weapon. Mm -hmm. And every now and then I wonder, given, you know, I mean, everybody else is carrying these days in a lot of states and I don't. I don't trust them at all, you know, yeah. uh, but, and it's hard enough to trust police who are trained to use weapons these days, but I don't own a weapon and, and I, I don't want to hurt anybody mm -hmm. and I don't want to be hurt. And, and then there's some other theological issues. I mean, I studied with Stan Hauerwas, but I did my doctorate at Notre Dame. I worked with, you know, 
I did work with John Howard Yoder, but I also worked with Gene Porter mm-hmm. and, and Richard McCormick and Maura Ryan and Todd Whitmore. And, and so I'm not a pacifist, but I've been deeply influenced by that. And there are things that I take seriously, including loyalties mm. and, and, and conflicting loyalties. And, and I'm a Howard Wassian or a Bill Kavanaugh type of person when it comes to you know, the national anthem you know standing to the you know to that or so police have to swear an oath Mm -hmm. to defend the constitution you know i actually have issues with swearing oaths yeah sure i mean i'll swear to serve and protect human beings right but not but once you nationalize that you right not a piece of paper Mm -hmm. not an idea so those are issues that it's not just the use of force that's an issue that that is an issue for me sure i do think that it's sometimes justified to use force including lethal force but but there's a, there's a larger systemic structure that it exactly. is part of and yes there are at least aspects of that that are right an issue so, so i don't want to be a part of that so mm-hmm. much anymore you've published and written a lot on these questions as well and you also said you you did some background in bioethics. You're now the healthcare ethics chair. What has that shift been like for you, or meant for you, or is it? I mean, is it really a like a shift of focus for you in that sense? Or yeah, m- almost all of my publications have been violence related. Mm-hmm. You know, war and peace, or death penalty, or policing. A few years ago, I became interested in environmental ethics and ecology. I never had a course on that at all. Sure. So I read up on it. I started teaching. I, w- I was given a grant by some sisters in Ohio uh, that uh, to start teaching a course at Walsh University on theology and ecology. And so I became very interested in that. I think this is a very urgent issue for the world, for people, as well as for the church. And the Pope's encyclical is, you know, obviously an expression of the urgency of all this. So I, I had no training for that, and yet I've got two edited books on that, <laughs> and I get interviewed about that, and I write about that. Mm-hmm. I had actual course training in bioethics mm-hmm. and medical ethics, but I never published on that, primarily because I, one of my colleagues, Kathy Caveney, I think she said that a lot of us publish basically where the demand is, where mm-hmm. we're invited to. And given my background and experience, that's where the demand has been yeah. uh, to publish mostly in that. Then the ecology- and, I mean, the, the last year has really been yeah. such a big question for use of force ethics and things like that. And Right. Well, and then even before the police stuff, I mean, with drones and mm-hmm. then with Syria and ISIS and all that. So there's always these things. I'm still doing those things. Mm-hmm. And there's there, the world... There's no time out for these things. Right, I mean, right, they right. just keep happening, and unfortunately. For bioethics, I had the academics, but I just never published in that, although there's a lot going on there as well. And one of my comprehensive exam questions for my Ph.D. at Notre Dame was on the Human Genome Project and genetic interventions. Hmm. So at smaller schools, Simpson College and Walsh University, I taught some bioethics courses, and there's always bioethics units in my Introduction to Christian Ethics mm-hmm. types of courses. So, you know, I'm, I stayed familiar with it. But the opportunity arose a year and a half ago at St. Louis for me to, uh, there was the opening, there was the need for mm-hmm. this, 
And I've done so much in these er- other areas right now that, like, what else could I come up that with yeah. that's new and creative yeah. with Just War? I mean, I've done use postbellum, use antebellum. I've done stuff on cluster munitions and drones. I mean, there's there will be, unfortunately, other developments. But, I mean, really, I feel like I've done a lot. you got a handle on it. The same for policing and criminal justice stuff. I've probably done more than I should have on environment and ecology stuff. Uh, <laughs> but, and then three years ago, after a trip to Ireland with my family, we returned and driving from Chicago back to St. Louis. And on the way, we stopped in Indianapolis, out of the way, so my daughters could go to the Children's Museum there. And I fell in the middle of the night and fractured mm. my skull from the left side all the way to the right side. And I had a sub arachnoid hemorrhage right in the middle suture and a subdural hemorrhage in the front left lobe and it was a life-threatening injury mm. so I became a patient for the first time in my life wow and I'm still recovering almost three years later but I experienced being a patient and I was thinking about oh, stuff I read a long time ago you know Paul Ramsey's the patient as person you know and Stan Harawas he he and I think Stephen Fowle once did an essay on on practicing patience with the wordplay, pun mm-hmm. on, you know, the virtue of patience, but also being a patient. Yeah. I, I've been giving talks on that, and I'm working on an article on that right now. Uh, I became much more interested. I mean, while I was in hospital, I was really observing and interacting with the nurses and the surgeons and doctors and, and, and really paying attention to, as best as I could, what was going on. And I found it very interesting and and... So when a year and a half ago, this opportunity arose at St. Louis to begin doing healthcare ethics, bioethics, in this capacity that I now have, I was like, all right, you know, that actually, it's been a booster shot, giving me, uh, uh, I mean, Paul Ramsey and, and Jim Childress and, and Jim Gustafson, Lisa Cahill, Stanley Harwas. They're not just one-issue people. They've right. written on all these right, things. Right, yeah. and, and I think today a lot of us, I mean, we need experts who are really specialists sure. in something. I mean, go-to people. Dan Finn, he knows uh, economics and Catholic social thought. Go-to guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, I don't think I have to worry about being a person that people go to on just war or police stuff or criminal justice stuff. Yeah. I'll still do stuff in those things, but I – I really want to be able to teach now in this other thing, and I'm finding ways actually to bring them together. Mm-hmm. I, I've got a, a, a chapter of a book coming out in December with Orbis Books on just war in the 21st century, but I, I co-authored a chapter with one of my PhD students who just defended, and, and, and this chapter is on moral injury. Mm. You know, and, and you know how that has become really medicalized, but mm-hmm. you know that that really is. It's necessary, but insufficient. Yeah. There's something more going on with moral injury. And that word moral is there for a reason. And, and so it really brings us back to the old Augustinian mournfulness and the old practices the church did of requiring penance and retreats mm-hmm. and, and this time so that there could be a cleansing. Even, even for soldiers who fought in just wars and mm-hmm. feel like they did nothing wrong, like some of our soldiers now, they really... 
many of them did not. They say, I did not do anything wrong, yet I right. feel this. Right, right, right. Um, so the church used to require these practices mm-hmm. for soldiers who even did everything right, according to them, because right, yeah. there's something that still happens to you. And a process needs to occur that is not reductionist mm-hmm. and not just only medical, yeah. but something to help these persons to transition and reintegrate back into the community. Yeah, so yeah. this brings together bioethics, healthcare ethics, but also the old just war stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and, and sacramental theology, right? Like exactly. I mean, this is the heart of the sacraments of healing is this reinitiation of community. It's not just about fixing symptoms or things yep. like that. It's Minor. And, this, and this seems to be such a profound problem for soldiers, especially now coming home, is this this transition back into a very, very different way of life and and not having necessarily the same sort of communal support to enable that transition. Right, and just applauding them in the airport terminal and saying thank you for your service or whatever. Actually, a lot of them are saying that only makes them feel worse. Interesting. The reason why it's being done is because Vietnam, it was the opposite. Right. You know, not a welcome back at all. So now we're kind of going to the other extreme where, you know, it's just, hey, hooray, Mm -hmm. and and no. There's something else that needs to happen. So uh, it does bring back liturgical sacramental for me. I I minored in that at Notre Dame. You, mm-hmm. you, you major in an area, moral theology for me, and then you have two minors. I did political philosophy and liturgical history. Hmm. And one of my comprehensive exam questions, again, was on the Celtic penitentials. Hmm. So the penitentials had a lot to do with these soldiers coming back and the penances that had to be done. So everything kind of, it wasn't planned this way, but all these things kind of are... Yeah really significant threads in just about anything I do these days. It also, in a sense, sounds like you needed to work on something new. I mean, you needed to, when you, when you get to a certain level with one thing, I mean, it's, it's great and that you can do that and it's great. People look to you for that, but you also want to do something new. I mean, you want to do creative work and yeah. And there's so many students right now. We've got some excellent graduate students in the Center for Healthcare Ethics at St. Louis right now who are interested in theology. Mm-hmm. And right now, around the country, the Catholic Health Association just did a survey of ethicists associated with that organization about two years ago, and they just published the results this past year in one of their newsletters. And I think this is off the top of my head. It's generally accurate, but more than... More than 60% of the ethicists are over the age of 50. Mm. And in the next 10 to 20 years, there's going to be a lot of retirements. And healthcare in the United States, I mean, obviously there's demand. Catholic healthcare is a very big and important component of healthcare providers in the United States. And they need Catholic ethicists. Many are older. Many are going to retire, and the younger ones coming up lack theology. Hmm. So that is a problem. They maybe have one course, whatever. Now, when all this bioethics and healthcare ethics started, it was mostly theologians. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, theologians like Paul Ramsey and Richard McCormick. There are a lot of clergy involved. I'm a lay person. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are lay, laity now. In Catholic healthcare ethics, a lot of the persons there are not only laity, but they don't have the theology. Mm -hmm. So St. Louis University, we're trying to 
address that need yeah. right now. And so we do now have a joint PhD in Catholic moral theology or theological ethics and healthcare ethics. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, I mean, we had 100% employment this year. Nine PhDs finished 100% employment in academic institutions that are tenure track, as well as in hospitals and healthcare systems. And so that is That's fantastic. But there's a need. Yeah. There's the demand, and students are able to really like I. I just was lucky to do with my own uh, trajectory. But these students are able to pull together their interest in theological ethics and healthcare. So I've got students with JDs, MDs, MTSs, but there's that need and there's that interest right now and that energy really is infusing my own energy again. Sure. It's contagious. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. How would you then characterize for yourself, well, so one, one question I have is sort of what's the relationship between teaching and research for you? Because, I mean, it sounds like they're very closely interrelated. I'm also sort of curious on like a like practical logistical level like how how it is that you do theology like how you arrange your days or weeks or or approach projects or things like that mm. so all right so yes teaching in the classroom and i i would add teaching also in parishes mm -hmm. and also just even to a wider audience i like to write for christian century and sojourners and commonweal the tablet in the uk so i you know a lot of my friends younger as well as older and my age we don't just do the academic scholarship right. i mean we we really are trying to be theologians for the church but also public intellectuals i mm -hmm. think more and more but in the classroom yeah i mean that course on theology and ecology became a book that i edited called green discipleship mm -hmm. and because i was using a lot of different really good books for the undergraduates but I just wanted one really good anchor book that I could supplement with other books that go into some things more sure. in depth. So I, I was like, where is this book? And finally, I, I spoke with the editors of Anselm Academic, and I pulled together 20-some of my friends from various places <laughs> and they all that are good teachers. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, you know, let's really make something that's going to be useful for the classroom. And a lot of parishes use it too. But So there's where, you know, kind of a need from the classroom developed into you know some well it's a it's a textbook but it's a, a scholarly thing and then not long after that Jamie Schaefer and I co-edited a volume on Benedict the 16th and sustainability and justice mm -hmm. yeah that's clearly an example and then even on other issues war and peace and, and healthcare ethics and even in my basic christian ethics courses yeah i i mean i learned from my students I learned from reading. I mean, it's nice to get paid a little bit to keep on reading and to keep on learning. Mm -hmm. and it's a pretty good life. And so every semester, I mean, there's ideas that just crop up. You see things. You notice things. So I just finished a, a Ph.D. seminar uh, on Catholic bioethics this spring. And my students and I, were we were noticing, like, wow, you know, there's an article there. There's something there. You know what? Again, here's maybe – there could be a book here that does what these three things are trying to do, but mm -hmm. wouldn't it be nice to have one or something? So even in an undergraduate class on healthcare ethics uh, last year, I had my students read a number of books, and, 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 and they, at the end of the semester, were like, wouldn't it be nice to have one book that kind of just really brought these things together? Or, you know, here's something that's really missing, and, and 
wouldn't that be an interesting article? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's usually for me teaching or my own experience that gives rise to the scholarship Mm -hmm. rather than I come up with some idea out of the blue or whatever and then I do the scholarship and that leads to the teaching or something it arises somewhat spontaneously I want to go something you said about the being a public intellectual in some sense do you and I just I've been wondering about this because I I mean I blog a lot and and that's sort of one you know method of doing that but do you think that ethicists in a way are sort of particularly suited to being public intellectuals in a way that a scripture scholar or a systematic theologian or or a theologi- or someone who does the history, history of theology that are maybe less suited to? Is it, I mean, because the, the topic seems so applicable or accessible to yeah. a, a wider audience? or Well, I mean, obviously I know more about what my fellow ethicists are doing, so I've been involved with the Catholic Moral Theology blog mm-hmm. from its beginning. I'm no longer really officially a part of that anymore, although I could still post there on occasion. Sure. So back in December, I was the primary author of a, a statement mm-hmm. of Catholic theologians on racial justice mm-hmm. and the policing stuff. And we got 450 signatures for that f- from Catholic theologians, not all liberal. I mean, it's across the spectrum. I posted that even though at Catholic Moral Theology, uh, even though I'm no longer officially a part of that. I've also done blogging for political theology that today blog and I've blogged elsewhere before Ecclesia Project I don't do that quite as much I know women in theology they have contributors from various subfields of theology so it's yeah. not all ethicists so I see other theologians yeah. there's there's PhD student at St. Louis University Alyssa Cutter who writes yeah. for them and she's a historical theologian yeah so uh, I think it can be done from any area I mean Goodness gracious, I think, for example, a scripture scholar, I would love to see more blogs of really good stuff yeah. on Revelation and, and you know, just yeah. because the, what's really popularly known out there is all the left behind stuff like that. I mean, there are people that are interested in this yeah, that, yeah. that really, you know, they're not going to read something that's just an academic book. And there's a lot of people that don't get to go to college or university and get to have a class with such a person. So, yeah. you know, I mean... We all can do better to get the word out, yeah. I think. It just occurs to me, thinking of my life, I mean, I do systematics, and so there's one thing, you know, sort of like blog statistics and traffic and all that kind of thing, but when you think of, you know, kind of the the publications that get maybe wider readership, you know, like the Common Wheels or Christian Centuries or, or Time Magazine and Washington Post and, you know, on Faith and all that, it just seems like a, a, lot, a lot of what I see are the sort of it's more often ethicist because it's so often issues yeah it's it's issues that have such an ethical grab to them yeah that seem timely yeah but again it's great if a historical theologian yeah you know sees some sort you know well you know you don't have to reinvent the wheel here yeah. or you know this isn't the first time this has come up and maybe yeah, it's come up in a different way in the or, past or yeah. something like that yeah, and systematic theologians could i mean at the end of the day we're all theologians these names for these different branches uh Mm -hmm. we make a big deal out of them and yeah we have our areas of expertise but at some point for me i mean for my masters i had some systematic theology i had scripture i I took greek i you know i'm not a biblical scholar but we've all had a little bit of everything right And, and you know i'm sure we all can even if i've written some stuff on I reviewed a book on Revelation for National Catholic Reporter once uh, (laughs) because I had a course on it at Duke a long time ago. But, you know, but this book was really great. And it went into a lot of political theology, too, Mm -hmm. at the time Revelation was written and all that. So, I mean, there was a lot of ethics in it. 
So yeah, I mean, we can we can do what we can, but maybe not go to where we're too uncomfortable. Yeah. But it does. I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr, he was an ethicist. I mean, right. think of public intellectuals in the past. They probably tended to be the ethicist too. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, I guess that's who normally comes to mind for me. Yeah. And, and and some of that's potentially just you know failure of imagination in a certain sense. But the yeah, those seem to be the figures that come up. And and I I guess I sometimes wonder if that stems from not just from them being, you know, big public issues, but that there's there's something about the reasoning behind, you know, ethics and, and different ethical perspectives that is, you know, possibly more accessible to a broader public or an educated public or, or, or however you want to construe that, that is different from what a lot of maybe systematics does sort of normally, right? Like, right. There's probably not going to be a new encyclical that has something to do with the Trinity. Right, 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 right. Or, or yeah. With Christology, uh, right. I mean, I, those things are going to hopefully be the, I mean, in whatever format, comes, right? right? Like, yeah. But, you know, there's nothing like, oh, there's going to be a new synod on the, yeah. you know, Nicene Creed or something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it seems like, as I'm thinking more about this, the only time I can remember when this kind of came up is like when, when the Da Vinci Code came out or when the Passion of the Christ came out, you know, when these big sort of right. like cultural phenomena that are related come out. You know, then there was, I mean, there was room for everyone to have, you know, the sort of theological take to it, but. Well, I'll tell you what, it just occurs to me, atonement theology. Yeah. I mean, that is crucial right now because, I mean, there's a lot of bad atonement mm-hmm. theology out there and systematic theologians. I mean, I, I, I tried to address that, but I mean, you know, with regard to the death penalty, mm-hmm. with regard to many things, I mean, even with the, going back to the moral injury thing. I mean, the word sacrifice comes up. And, mm-hmm. you know, Stanley Hauerwas had a book about this uh, where he talks about sacrifices of war and how that, you know, that language gets used all the time. And that, you know, that's really uh, an abuse of that term right. and stuff. And, and, and because the, the view that, you know, Christ's sacrifice did away with the need for all these other. But, you know, so, yeah, I, I think that systematic theologians could really home in on something like that yeah, like and, the prosperity and try to help or, us to yeah. yes yeah yeah no that's good I, that just occurs to me now as we're talking one question i i have which is you know certainly a, on some level a selfish question is what kind what advice do you have for younger theologians or even for grad students who are you know sort of in process to in starting their careers what what do you like recommend or encourage what are practices that you've had that you think really helped you out or things you wish you had done differently well Okay, going back to one of your earlier questions about how do I do my week and do yeah, my theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I basically feel like I'm whitewater rafting, and I'm just trying to – I'm going with the current and trying to avoid <laughs> rocks. Uh, I mean, things yeah, just happen. I, I want to say – sorry, the, the, only the reason that I especially find that funny is I was talking earlier. We did it, we did an episode with Tom O'Meara, and, uh, and he, he talked about his sort of experiences as, as being in a canoe going down the river and – that's so much more placid in a sense than yours. yes, and I, I think it's the same idea. But. Well, the rivers in in Iowa, where Tom's originally from, uh, are much calmer than than the rivers in North Carolina, where I used to do that sort of thing. Uh, but even in Florida, where I used to do a lot of canoeing, it might be placid and calm. But I dealt with alligators, mm-hmm. and Tom never had to worry about that in Iowa. Uh, but yeah, there's another systematic theologian that. He's doing a lot about, about you know extraterrestrial yeah. life. Yeah, I mean that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's interest out there, and there's need for that. I mean, and again, the stuff that's going on right now, 
about science mm-hmm. and theology. Yeah. I mean, systematic theologians can can really address that. So yeah. that just don't want to get off on that tangent. Sure, but sure, going sure. back to what you just asked, friends mm. at Duke and at Notre Dame, friends with my peers. I mean, you can't force it to happen, but it, I mean, at Duke, students kind of, you know, cluster together and friendship was very important. But when I first got to Notre Dame, I really felt that and didn't detect it at first, but it developed. And so with some of my fellow students, we we would have lunch once a week just to talk about stuff. And we would play basketball together. And some of the professors played too. Just the friendships, those friendships really have, were so important when things got rough, when mm-hmm. things got difficult, not only did we sometimes help each other with our work and, and you know, do like accountability little things right. like, what are you writing? Sure. Are you being productive with your dissertation? But even just other, you know, personal issues, life issues, stuff like that. So, and those, those friendships are still friendships of mine, not just in the Facebook friend way, but, you know, they are real friendships, even if I don't see them, mm-hmm. you know, I see them, you know, at conferences, you know, once a year or twice a year, but those friendships then developed into, I mean, actually one of my friends at Notre Dame was interested in ecology, and and I knew that he taught classes on that where he ended up, and so I always was interested in that. Mm -hmm. I just never had a course in it, never had time to read it until later on, but I knew I could go to him for some suggestions about Mm -hmm. what to, how to begin to teach that, but publications, I mean, if you really look at my CV, you'll notice a lot of collaborative work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've edited a lot of things. I'm a journal editor now, but even articles and book chapters and trying to do that with your professors as well. I mean, Harawas do- has, you know, track record of doing that with his students. Todd Whitmore, my dissertation director at Notre Dame, I mean, one of my first publications at Notre Dame was a co-authored chapter for a book with him. And so, you know, to don't do it just to use people, but really establish right. these relationships, and they will percolate, I'm pretty sure, into worthwhile projects that mm-hmm. really are helpful. Graduate students today are publishing a lot more. I mean, I, th- I think I was part of the generation in the 90s that was really one of the first to start doing that, mm-hmm. so I had some publications under my belt, some peer-reviewed stuff, you know, even before I finished my PhD. Now I'm seeing books and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but... I think that's really good, but I also think that it can be overdone. Mm. Almost everybody's got something now, and more than you know what we did, but really go for quality rather than quantity. Sure. And really make sure to get the dissertation done. And you know, most of us are going to start teaching at. I started at Simpson College and then Walsh University. The teaching load, it was all undergraduate at Simpson, and it was a 4-4 at Simpson, a 3-3 at Walsh. I had some master's students at Walsh. You're going to be a jack-of-all-trades probably. Mm-hmm. At, I mean, you're at St. Leo. I, yeah. I, I don't know how many are in the department, and how, uh, but I, I've taught courses on the Gospels. I've yep. taught courses on intro to religion. I've, I've taught courses on a lot of things that I really went back to my master's training rather mm-hmm. than my Ph.D. training. And really, at the undergraduate level, I, I didn't get to teach courses on war and peace or the environment or economic justice or something as often as I had to do just the basic intro, intro to, to Christian yeah. ethics. Now I'm at a place where I do more of 
what I do best because I'm at a bigger place with over 30 faculty members in mm -hmm. the department. And so Julie Hanlon Rubio, she can really do her family stuff and I can really do my, yeah, my stuff. And Elizabeth Block Sweeney is one of our new additions this past year from university of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And she's really on Aquinas and conscience. And, and so, you know, we all do the basic intro course, but for the upper level courses, we can then specialize. We, we and, get to do that yeah. more than I did at smaller schools. So I think going back to the word patience again, mm -hmm. I mean, patience and, and, and just things will happen and unfold and, and don't try to do everything right away and all, all at one time and spread yourself too thin. Do you have, going back to the, the whitewater rafting sort of metaphor for your, for your <laughs> how you manage, do you have any like particular like tips or tricks for how you remain as prolific as you have been or how you organize and yeah. you know complete projects? Because really, I mean, let's be honest, it's the completing the project that's often the... Right, the, right. <laughs> the and obviously patch. procrastination is a problem for most of us. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, really the collaboration with others has been one of the things that has really led to the accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, you got deadlines, you're working with someone and you don't want to let the other person down. Right. And, and they're helping you and you're doing your part. So, I mean, that's always been a good thing for me. And so delegate, get people to help. I, I've edited stuff, single authored things that I've done. I, it, for me, it is a lot of hard work, especially since my injury three mm -hmm. years ago. It, it's, it's, it's harder to do as much reading and writing at one time as I used to. So I have to break it down in bite-sized chunks. Having a family and two young children, both under the age of 10, mm. and all the other commitments, you know, committees and, 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 and life and all that happens, it's, it's a juggling act. So I run. I'm, I'm out running an hour a day. I've been wow. doing that for 30, over 30 years. And that's my time where I actually am able to get outside, experience the snow, experience the sun, experience whatever, even when I'm at conferences, and, and to, to pray, to meditate, to also just unwind. And, and actually, that's where a lot of my ideas come from. Hmm. So, yeah, most of my stuff has always come from teaching and experience, but the idea is how to pull some things together, for me, happen when I'm doing my one-hour run. You know, make sure there's time for mental and physical health and, and spiritual health. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot with liturgy, so obviously being a part of a, a parish, a church community, and being plugged in that way is always important to me as, as well. Mm-hmm. So as we wrap up here, we'd like to close with five less serious questions to gauge some other things. So, so first off, are you more of a coffee guy or a tea guy? I'm a coffee guy. I mean, working midnight shift all those years, yeah. I, I hated the smell of coffee growing up. Couldn't stand it, let alone the taste of it. But <laughs> then when I was working midnight shift and going to classes during the day and only four hours of sleep, I started drinking coffee. I probably drank too much over the years i'm drinking much less now and just a few cups in the morning first yeah. thing that's it i do like tea though yeah. so when we're in ireland or in england or sometimes at home we have a, a wonderful place 
uh, an Englishman opened up in St. Louis called the London Tea Room, and and we go there once in a while for some scones and tea. Sure. It's the real deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, some of the teas are as jealous. good as scotch. You know, there's some really. <laughs> I mean, yeah. really. I mean, very complex. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but that's not a daily thing for me. It's yeah. it's a treat. Yeah. Okay. All right. What is your favorite biblical name? Well, my name Tobias mm-hmm. is from the Book of Tobit. Mm-hmm. You know. Growing up, most people called me Toby, mm-hmm. so I always get that question, Toby or Tobias, or as I like to say, Toby or not Toby. <laughs> uh, and, and I tell my students, you can't call me Tobias because I don't want to bias you one way or the other. About, but, um, uh, yeah, it never occurred to me there were so many Tobias jokes. <laughs> yeah, but the book of Tobit, but you know, I hated my name growing up, and mm. I didn't know it, what it was or where it came from or anything until I was at Duke doing my master's, and someone pointed out to me, and his name's escaping me now, but he did Hebrew scripture back in the day. Uh, Roland Murphy, Father mm. Father Roland Murphy, he he's a great biblical scholar, and and he he said to me something about you know Book of Tobit and all that, and I was like wow, and I and I I told my mom I'm like oh I, you know I found out where my name comes from the Book of Tobit. She's like what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean my mom's a lifelong Catholic too, you know, but she's like what are you talking about? In northern Ohio, northern Indiana, there's a large Amish community mm-hmm. in Shipshawana. And Tobias, it, it, it's a common name amongst the Amish. And, and so they got the name <laughs> because of that. And here we are, a Catholic family got my name from the Amish when it's actually from a book called Tobit, which is in the Catholic Bible, the mm-hmm. Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical books, <laughs> rather than the, you know what most of us know. So, yeah, it's, it, John Howard Yoder thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number three, you can go either way on this if you want, but favorite or least favorite liturgical song? Wow, there's so many on both sides of that. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm in St. Louis. They got the St. Louis Jesuits and all the songs they did, and actually several of those were in our wedding mass. So I, I'll go with Gather Us In for mm. right now, yeah. As favorite or least favorite? Favorite. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> There's just talks in there about, you know, heaven's not something far away, but, you know, it's about the kingdom of God. Yeah. And, and you know, the kingdom of God has always been important to me. Back to the social gospel movement, Walter Rauschenbusch, you know, the, the already, not yet, all that kind of stuff. The kingdom, the kingdom, I would like to say. And, and with the Lord's Prayer of my undergrads, I'm like, you know, we pray that it come. You know, not that we get there someday, but that it comes. And, and that song really kind of conveys nice. that. And that was one of our hymns in the in the wedding mass. and. Yeah. Nice. That's really lovely. Of what or whom would you be the patron saint? <laughs> uh, Marvel Comics readers. <laughs> there you go. You didn't expect that one, did I've you? I've definitely not gotten that one And it was specific. Yet. Not DC, <laughs> Marvel. I mean, I was reading Avengers before it was cool. <laughs> I was never super into Avengers. It was really actually the movies that won me over to them. But okay. when I yeah, when I was a kid, it was Spider-Man and X-Men. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I liked X-Men and Spider-Man, too. And yeah. actually, the only one I still read is Spider-Man Yeah. Uh, on a regular basis. My daughters are starting to read stuff now. But I've got Avengers all the way back to issue 23. Holy cow. Yeah, in the original. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice retirement you're sitting on. Oh, there. yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, my wife's been asking about that. You know, what, what are those things doing in their boxes and their bags up in the closet? So... <laughs> Yeah. That's awesome. And the last question, 
What do you think the title of your biography or autobiography would be? Never, ever have thought about that because I'm not planning on doing an autobiography. <laughs> well, you know, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I love puns, as you've discovered yeah. in this. And maybe it'd be a play on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Nice. Nice. I mean, if that does, if that you know, it didn't work. You could always go with some version of the to be or not to be. Yeah. 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 Or if it was just <laughs> war, uh, on how to win rightly, you know, win right. <laughs> yeah. Play yeah, on yeah, my yeah. last name, which is supposed <laughs> to be Wainwright, but my ancestors couldn't spell. <laughs> they were illiterate. I inherited this version, but I mean, even on their, you know, I had ancestors that were in the civil war brothers and on the rosters of the muster calls i mean it'd be spelled win right my way without an a without a w in the middle and, and the brother on the same page be wainwright mm-hmm. and jeffrey wainwright always used to wag his finger at me and say you know we're related you're sure <laughs> supposed to be wainwright but uh i inherited this way which is actually uh the editors of commonweal magazine once wrote me when i submitted it, an essay to them on just war they're like you know your name it, it's almost like it's made up because you write about just war <laughs> where you, you want to win, but not at all costs. And by breaking yeah. all the rules, you, yeah, yeah. you want to win right, really. Yeah. So that might be it. You have your sort of theology stage name. Is, there it is. is. Yeah. But it's my real name. <laughs> Honest to God. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I really I've enjoyed it. it, too. Thank you. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.